It's rare that something has the potential to help both our bodies and the planet at the same time. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about Oobly and sweet proteins. Did you know that protein has a sweet tooth? That's right. There are a handful of plants that grow near the equator that make fruit that produce sweet-tasting plant protein that's not sugar. These are called sweet proteins. Sweet proteins are amazing tricksters and taste absolutely delicious. But better yet, they're digested just like any other dietary protein. That means they have no impact on blood sugar or the gut microbiome. Oobly uses sweet proteins to make incredible plant-based, low-sugar, sweet iced teas that are craft-brewed with clean, fresh ingredients and zero artificial sweeteners. No stevia, no sugar alcohols. With only 7 grams of sugar in an entire 16-ounce can, and that includes the fruit, you can have your sweet and sip it too. Oobly's sweet teas come in three delicious flavors, lemon, peach, and mango yuzu. Get 20% off your first order with the promo code GENIUS at oobly.com. G-E-N-I-U-S. That's the promo code at oobly.com. O-O-B-L-I dot com. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. Maggie Wagner. She's an assistant professor assistant scientist in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, Zola University of Kansas. We're going to talk about plants and their genetics and get into her research. So Maggie, thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. If you would tell me a bit about your background and then about your current research. Sure. So I grew up in Michigan. I went to the University of Michigan and originally I was planning to go to medical school, but while I was there, I got pretty interested in evolution and also in plants. And so time I graduated, I was um, decided I wanted to go to graduate school and get my PhD, a topic that was related to genetics and the evolution of plants. So I went to Duke University, got my PhD there in 2016. And while I was at graduate school, I sort of unexpectedly got pulled into an interest in plants' microbiomes. So I, until graduate school, I had never really thought much about microbes. I was a lot more interested in plants. So I ended up, during graduate school, sort of combining my interests in genetics and evolution, which I'd had for a while, with this newer interest in microbiomes. And that has that sort of shaped the rest of my career up to this point and took me to where I am now. Yeah, so sort of the relationship between plant genetics and plant microbiomes is the core theme of my research. And I'm interested in the relationships between plant genes and microbiomes, both in the context of how plants evolved, but also in possible applications for agriculture. So I think most people know that crops have been bred or are being bred for increased productivity, increased resistance to stress, and so forth. And one aspect of that plant breeding process that interests me is the possibility that these breeding activities have altered the plant's interactions with helpful microbes that live in the soil. So from the agriculture perspective, I do a lot with maize trying to answer that question. 
do plants have epigenetic mechanisms just like people do? You know, methylation, plant-stone deacetylation, and does that interact very much with their microbial components? Plants do have epigenetic modifications. To be honest, I have no idea whether anyone has looked at whether plant epigenetics affect the microbiome. Well, I, I should amend that and say, as far as I know, no one has looked at that in plants. I'm here to give you like a hundred more things to do when you're only one person. I'm just kidding. I know you can't look at everything, but I have to ask anyone. This is interesting, but it's it's certainly a bit of a rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in people, you know, uh, the gut microbiome has been discussed, but people have a lot of different microbiomes that I've observed. You know, women, vaginal microbiome, gut microbiome, microbiomes in eyes, all over the place. What about in plants? Are there, um, is the root localized microbiome the most important or how many are, are there and how many are being studied? Oh, that's a great question. Um, it's very analogous to humans in the sense that for a plant, you end up seeing very different microbiomes depending on what part of the plant you're looking at. So just like how in humans, the the microbiome on the, the palm of your hand is going to be very different from inside of your mouth. For the plant, you see totally different microbiomes in the leaves and the roots and flowers and so forth. In terms of what is more important, I guess that depends on what functions you're talking about. So if the main sort of threat to a plant has to do with a, let's say, a disease that would infect the leaves, then in that case, the microbial community on the surface and inside the leaves is going to be extremely important. But in sort of general situations, the strongest evidence so far for the importance of the plant microbiome really focuses on what's going on in the soil and below ground. So the microbes that live on and inside plants' roots, they have a huge variety of really important functions. So there are certain types of fungi that can infect plant roots and send their own hyphae out into the soil and actually help the plant acquire more water and nutrients than it could otherwise. And there's a lot of bacteria that can actually produce hormones that the, that the plant uses inside its own body. And so they can have actually very strong effects on the health of the host plant. What plants are you focusing on and what microbial interactions? What's your research like right now? So for the past several years, I have focused mainly on corn or maize. And recently, since I started working at the uh, Kansas Biological Survey and Center for Ecological Research, I have started looking as well at some prairie grasses and particularly a species called eastern gamma grass, which is the closest evolutionary relative of maize that is native to the U.S. So I'm interested on in the interactions between maize and its microbial community from, from several perspectives. So first of all, I'm curious about how the act of domesticating and then breeding corn over you know decades to hundreds of years has influenced how, the ways it interacts with its microbiome. And there's already examples of this in soybean, for example, where there's evidence that because we've been breeding soybeans under very fertilizer-heavy conditions for a long time, what that has done is remove the incentive for the plant to form beneficial relationships with the bacteria that would normally be providing that nitrogen for the plant. And so I'm interested in whether similar things have been happening in maize. Oh, so fertilizers have created a dependency upon them, the plant to function normally? That sort of, yeah. So essentially... Because breeders have been growing their plants in 
very fertilizer heavy environments for a long time, what that does is it removes the evolutionary pressure for the plant to be able to recruit and interact with helpful microbes because the, it's easier for the plant to just get the, those nutrients from the fertilizer. And so what ends up happening is that, you know, without those fertilizers, normally any sort of mutation that would interfere with the plant's ability to harbor these beneficial microbes, those mutations would be selected against. The plant would not survive or it would produce fewer offspring. And so that is sort of a, the evolutionary pressure that has kept these reliance on the microbes for a very long time. But when there's fertilizer there, that mutation will not have the same sort of harmful effect because the plant has all the nutrients it needs. And so as a result, over you know many generations of breeding, those, those important allelic variants end up getting lost. We all know we should be eating less sugar. But we're constantly bombarded with drinks and snacks loaded with refined sugar or alternative sweeteners like stevia or erythritol that recent studies have shown might not be as harmless as we thought. Enter Oobly, who just launched the world's first beverages to satisfy your sweet tooth with protein. Sweet proteins are nature's candy and give Oobly's brand new sweet iced teas sugar-like sweetness without the impact to your health. Get 20% off your Oobly order with the promo code GENIUS at oobly.com and try all three delicious craft-brewed sweet iced teas, lemon, peach, and mango yuzu. That's oobly.com, O-O-B-L-I dot com, and use the code GENIUS, G-E-N-I-U-S. Um, have you um, tried to test more wild-type corn or maize versus, um, you know, cultivated ones and in the absence of fertilizers to see how well they do or how poorly? So I haven't looked at the effect of fertilizer per se. There are several other labs uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere that have looked over time, kind of comparing the the wild ancestor species of maize along with domesticated maize at, from various points in the breeding process. So like much older cultivars of maize compared to the modern hybrids that most growers are using nowadays. Um, and they have found found evidence that there's been a big change in the, the diversity of the microbiome that the maize is able to form in its roots over, over that sort of evolutionary history. My work has been focused more on sort of shorter time scales. So I'm for, so for example, I've partnered with maize breeders to grow up maize cultivars as well as so well let me back up here. So I've partnered with maize breeders to compare the microbiome assembly process in closely related maize lines that perhaps have been selected intensively for just maybe a decade or, or shorter. And so in that time frame, you can see big changes in sort of the overall traits of the plant. And it turns out that some of those changes will sort of have knock-on effects on the microbiome and others don't. Uh, when you say knock on, uh, so you're doing metagenomics of the microbiome to see the change in function, or are you just looking at the the, the prevalence or the absence of certain species or strains? Sure. So I'll give an example. We've looked at both, and I'll, I'll give an example of that. So one of the more interesting lines of work in my lab recently has had to do with comparing the microbiomes of, of maize before and after hybridization. So maize is, is famous for the strength of hybrid vigor, which means that the offspring of a cross between two cultivars or lines 
will be vastly larger, more productive, and more stress-resistant than either of its parents. And so that has led me to be looking a lot at whether the microbiome has anything to do with this. And it turns out, well, a few years ago, we figured out that actually hybrid maize and inbred maize actually form consistently different microbiomes from each other. And so that was just based on sort of looking at which microbes were there, you know, the composition of the community. But since then, we have moved on to, to look at the full metagenome. So now we're asking, okay, just because there's different microbes in these communities, does it actually matter for the, the function of those communities? So our early results from the full shotgun metagenome sequencing suggests that actually there are distinct profiles of functional genes that distinguish the microbiome of hybrid maize from the microbiome of inbred maize. So that's quite exciting. Well, what's showing up in the metagenomics? Is there a loss of ability or is it just a, a changing of abilities? You know, what do you see? So one of the things that we see are that inbreds, there is a higher, larger representation of microbial genes that are related to carbohydrate metabolism. And so, in other words, there's an enrichment of uh, bacterial genes that are specifically involved in fructose metabolism. There's an enrichment of bacterial genes that are involved in fructose metabolism in the inbreds relative to the hybrids. Now, it's not clear why exactly that is, but we suspect it has something to do with the root exudates. So, these are, you know, plant roots. In addition to taking up water and nutrients from the soil, they also deposit carbon-rich compounds in, into the soil. And one of the primary functions of those exudates is to feed the bacterial communities that live there. So that's something that we have to follow up on to, to see whether there is a consistent difference in fructose content in the root exudates of, of inbreds and hybrids. And well, depending on the, um, on the microbes that are near the roots, they're going to want payment, I guess, for their services, hydrogen <laughs> fixation, whatever it is. And you know, some may want fructose, some may want other stuff, but perhaps that's why there's a, a greater production because that's what their customers want with plants microbiome. Yeah, and there are corresponding uh, enrichments of, of other other metabolites in the hybrids to, to sort of make up for it. So what you see is a shift in the main sort of metabolism genes between inbreds and hybrids. And that, yeah, why that happens is we don't know yet. And we also don't know whether there are other particular microbial functions that go along with those different types of metabolism. Um, so all of that will have an impact on ultimately what is the upshot for these plants. Well, I mean, if a plant is getting certain nutrients from fertilizer and not from the ambient soil, it wouldn't need to attract the bacteria that would, let's say, do the nitrogen cycling if it's getting it from the, you know, from the fertilizer. So I would think that alone would change the microbial composition. And then maybe the fertilizer is allowing the plant to produce more of X or Y, and then it attracts different kinds of bacteria. For other functions. So I would think that this, you know, this fertilizer input is what uh, sets the stage to change everything. Well, there, yeah, there's no question that the presence of fertilizer will change the calculus of, you know, where a plant needs to invest the carbon that it makes through photosynthesis. If it has all the nutrients it needs, it does. there's no point in giving away its carbon to, to microbes to, in exchange for these nutrients. But one important thing to note is that we see these differences in microbiome composition and function between different plant genotypes that are growing in identical conditions. So even, you know, in a situation where all the plants are getting fertilizer or none of the plants are getting fertilizer, 
we still see changes in the microbiome that are simply due to the plant's genome, which is pretty cool. Yeah, well, I mean, even in a given field, some plants are going to be near the soil beneath them will be moist or less moist. You know, it may be near the edge of the field where there's other competitors that are around that are changing the composition of the soil, you know, the rockiness. I mean, there's, I guess there's, there's tons and tons of factors that would make a plant field not uniform. You know, how sunlight hits them, pests that maybe start at the edge of the field and those edge plants are more susceptible where they're under attack more often. I mean, I guess, you know, there's tons and tons of things that can go on. Yeah, that's for sure. Although I'll note, we do also see that these genetic effects are much simpler lab conditions. So we can grow corn in, you know, pure sand or something like that, where there's very, very little spatial variation of the spatial variation that you would normally find in a a, a real field. And we still see these impacts of, of the host genotype. But do you see, is it different impacts across the same plant under the same conditions? Or is that finally known? So, you know, we can grow, let's say we have two different cultivars of corn. We can grow, we can do an experiment where we grow, you know, 10 plants of each of those two cultivars together under the exact same conditions. And these plants are right next to each other, but they still end up attracting different sets of microbes to their roots. So you can have multiple plants under, you try to keep all the conditions the same, everything the exact same. How much variation will you see and what kind of variation in the lab, for instance? Yes, we do see variation and it's typically, it's not a super strong effect. So we see subtle but consistent differences in the microbiome that is assembled by different cultivars or genotypes of, of plant. The exact nature of the changes really depends on which two genotypes you're talking about. But so far, we we know that there's changes both in sort of the identity of the microbes that colonize the roots, but also in the gene functions that are represented. Right, so you're still seeing a lot of variation, even under same plant grown under exact same conditions. You're still seeing a big difference in the microbiomes or a small difference? Small difference in the microbiomes. But what makes that interesting, even though that, that effect is small, when you start to think about how, you start to think about the fact that plants have been evolving in the presence of microbes for millions of years, right? And so this effect, the fact that the plant genome can affect the composition of the microbiome makes it possible for that relationship to have been shaped by natural selection over long periods of time. So that's why it's a compelling question to look into, even though the effect is small compared to, for example, the effect of environmental factors or soil type or something like that. Have you tried to breed plants in the lab again under same conditions and see if you know if the offspring is even more different or more the same? Are you getting an average averaging of microbiomes around a you know a central core, even though even through multiple uh, generations of plants? Has anyone done that? So I've partnered with corn breeders who have seeds from multiple generations of plants that were selected often in the same field over several years. So we often do see genetic changes throughout that breeding process in the composition of the microbiome. So it definitely does impact the community, even on really short timescales. Another cool thing that we've found is that to some extent, when you cross and breed two maize cultivars together, the composition of the F1 hybrid offspring's microbiome is sort of partly intermediate to the two parents like you might expect, but there's other parts of the microbiome that are not. And that kind of 
matches up with the patterns we see for height and productivity where there's there's hybrid vigor. So it was it was pretty cool to see the the hybrid vigor pattern reflected in the microbial communities as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what are some uh, some questions you're looking to answer with your readings right now? I'm quite interested in the differences uh, in microbiome composition and control between perennial plants and annual plants. So that's one of the things that we're using this wild relative of maize for. So eastern gamma grass is a, a perennial plant that's native to the, the tall grass prairies that are here in Kansas. And so we have some ongoing projects that are related to sort of the temporal dynamics of host genotype effects on the microbiome. So for example, we we hypothesize that differences in microbiome composition between two plant genotypes is going to get stronger and stronger over time because the plant has more time to influence the, you know, its immediate environment. And so as a result, we think that perennial plants are going to end up having stronger genetic effects on their microbiomes than annual plants. Okay. Well, very good. Maggie, what's the best place for people to learn more about your research and to follow along? Where can they go? So my lab website's the best place to look at. That's wagnerlab.ku.edu. There's some good descriptions of our ongoing projects there. I do have a Twitter account, but I'm not super active on it. No problem, but wagnerlab.ku.edu, is that right? That's right. So, okay. Well, very good. Uh, Maggie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about your work. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much. Remember, if you're looking for groundbreaking low sugar products, head over to oobly.com and try the world's first iced teas made with sweet proteins, the future of sweet, because we all deserve to feel good about healthy sweetness. Use the promo code genius at oobly.com and get 20% off their lemon, peach, or mango yuzu sweet iced teas. Oobly is sweet without sacrifice. Website is O-O-B-L-I dot com promo code genius g-e-n-i-u-s if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes you've been listening to the finding genius podcast with richard jacobs if you like what you hear be sure to review and subscribe to the finding genius podcast on itunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and want to be smarter than everybody else Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.